Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that while the William Orbit remix of 24 Hours by Betty Boo appeared on the 12-inch and the CD single, the Norman Cook remix and the Vince Clark remix were vinyl only. And also, that's a lot of effort for a single that only got to number 25. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, and nobody else ever seems to, is writer Anna Kale. Anna, what you're up to? Where can we find it? Yeah, I'm up to various things in the pipeline, in my head anyway, whether they'll actually come to fruition, who knows. So yeah, just still kind of writing about film occasionally, um, appearing on podcasts or anyone will have me talking about film, about Diana Dawes. Obviously I had a book out about Diana Dawes a little while back, so I'm always happy to talk about her or about film in general. So yeah, you know, always plotting the next thing. Well, you might be happy to talk about film in general, but I'm not sure you ever planned to talk about your first choice, which (laughs) I can't actually describe this, although we're going to have to so let's all get on board the disco bus check all systems crew melvin hold the satellite disco millie program the broadcast computer this is Doobie Duck Live from Cape Canaveral. Testing, testing. Is there anyone there? Okay, yes, you did hear that right. That was the intro there to Doobie Duck's Disco Bus, a series that is burnt into my memory. Anna, how would you describe it? Oh my goodness. I think it's kind of like end of the peer puppet show on acid, really, I think is possibly how I would describe it. Or a fever dream, maybe. Sometimes I do actually think I did imagine this in the corners of my mind somewhere rather than actually existing because, yeah, it's like nothing I've ever seen or heard since. Yeah, you are right about the end of the peer nature of the puppets and of the show itself because basically the setup is Doobie Duck is a duck doing a pirate television broadcast, which seemed to be like the big go-to thing in the 80s. You know, technology that, apart from those guys with the Max Headroom mask, nobody could do. But everything on TV had somebody hacking into a TV signal, whether it was John Taylor from Duran Duran, as has been discussed on here previously, or whether it was this puppet duck and his mates just sort of like wobbling about, just sort of leaning from side to side inside of pop records. Yeah, obviously you've described it perfectly there. That is essentially what it is. It was a puppet show where they sang along to contemporary music, so contemporary records for a few minutes. There was a few kind of jokes from the compare Doobie Duck. And yeah, that was it. It was like a five minute show every so often. And it just was, yeah, like nothing else really. But yeah, it had a really kind of, what we say, end of the pier, northern working men's club type vibe. Doobie Duck was an absolute style icon and a real kind of character. But somehow, I don't know, styled or maybe on like, I don't know, Les Dawson or, you know, one of the comedians from the 70s you know on that show where he had this glittery suit and a big bow tie and he'd kind of like yeah he was like a northern club compare he would introduce the band and they'd play the final countdown by europe or you know whatever it is and then they'd be off again well you've kind of brought me on to the thing that really baffled me about it at the time and still does now is that i'm not quite sure when i say why this was aimed at children i don't think it was too weird or it wasn't unsuitable or anything it just doesn't make sense like you mentioned doobie duck was a kind of end of the entertainer figure. He reminded me at the time and does now of the same sort of role as Ted Bovis in Heidi High. (laughs) And when you were a kid at the time in the 80s, Ted Bovis seemed weird. I mean, he was supposed to be a relic of the 50s, the rock and roll era, or somebody who was trying to adjust to it while he was still in his club compare mode. But he felt really sort of out of your frame of reference. But that's what they did with Doobie Duck. And then you've got these puppets. <laughs> not even moving that. I say this with all due respect to the puppeteers, because I'm sure they were very capable and talented. The puppets were given to work with, these things with spindly arms and massive hands standing behind prop pianos, just sort of waving their arms up and down. And And also, what is the appeal of the miming to pop records? I wonder if it was supposed to be more subversive, because my main memory of it is they did. This is 1989, so how on the ball is this? They did Bross doing I Owe You Nothing, and they had like a... (laughs) Matt Goss duck with the red leather jacket, like sort of slightly kind of waxy sheen to his feathers. 
you know, sort of zooming forward in the star as well during the instrumental bit. So it really looked like somewhere along the line, it had been intended as kind of satire thing. And in fact, actually, I didn't know this. It apparently started as an insert, like a mock pirate insert. And do you remember there was a very, very strange children's BBC magazine show called The Satellite Show? Yes, I do remember the name. Yeah. Satellite, 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 satellite. Every nation has a TV station. And it was like about TV around the world, presented by a puppet that like Andy Crane called CD. Was it CD? Was it DC? It was one of the two. But anyway, Doobie Duck was kind of like breaking into that and he got his own series. But I remember seeing those puppets on things like Cracker Jack for years beforehand and thinking, what are those weird puppets that keep being on things? That was something that happened back then, was you would get these figures, like Rondo Veneziano, the classical musicians with the sort of robot faces on, when no one had explained to you what they were, but they were on everything as though you were supposed to know what they were. And I distinctly remember feeling like that about what became Doobie Duck's disco bus. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, slightly weird, yeah, that reoccurrence of those kind of characters. The house band, I guess you call them, on Doobie Duck's <laughs> disco bus were called the Quacker Jacks. So maybe there's a link there, I don't know, with Cracker Jack. Yeah, these puppets are strange. They're neither convincing nor kind of, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's a strange old thing, but yeah, it continued. You know, you had Doobie Duck's disco bus for a while, and then I think they followed it up with disco truck or something. Yeah, Doobie Duck's duck truck, which that is 1991, truck, yeah. and then Doobie Duck's Euro tour in 1992. I'm not quite sure. But do you know, I'm going to say this. Those puppets, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not frightening in themselves. But I would imagine some kids had sleepless nights over them. Because they're just sort of weird for reasons I can't put my finger on. They are weird. And, you know, I have thought about Doobie Duck quite a lot over the years. You know, I'll just be minding my own business and suddenly Doobie Duck will pop into my head. Or someone will say something and I'll, like, raise it, you know. And, like, there'll be people looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, what are you on about? Why would there be a disco duck? Because, yeah, why would that exist in anything other than my subconscious? It, It genuinely does have the feel of a weird fever dream. So, yeah, I do doubt myself sometimes. But I'm glad that you remember it as well. Well, I do. But the problem with it is... At the same time as it's difficult to describe, it's also a very simple format. What we said about it is literally just what happens. Yeah. And it's very difficult to find much to say about it other than it was on, this is what happened in it, and it was really odd. Yeah, and the way that they kind of take on the persona of the act that they're miming along to, yeah, they, do, they go to all that effort, but you don't have the ducks actually singing. You know, they're just miming along to the record, dressed in some weird kind of way linked to the artist that they're singing along to. That's it, a point. It's really it should odd. be those voices that were everywhere yeah. like the way there were those goblin voices on children's bbc <laughs> that you don't get now that, that sort of high-pitched thing where it was yeah i noticed the other day jacob rees mogg has been hired by talk tv and they said he'll have an impish approach to the show <laughs> i thought i do hope they treat his voice to make it like one of those imps that be on rent a ghost but yeah it shouldn't be re-recorded with do you know what i was gonna say it's probably the reason you can't get these on dvd is using the original records <laughs> a copyright thing i think you can't get them on dvd because nobody will buy them <laughs> No. Yeah, it reminds me of, we talked about the end of the pierce aspect, but yeah, it does have that feel of kind of Blackpool or, you know, in the amusement arcades when you used to have that machine where you'd put some money in and like a little thing would start playing musical oh, instruments. Oh, there'd be puppets like miming to Hootsmon. Yeah. It was always Hootsmon. It's that kind of like, you know, but like somehow satellited in. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know why that was a thing. Why, why did that have to be? I don't know. Well, I can say that for some reason was a big obsession in the 80s and, and now it is literally possible to do that nobody does it yeah exactly exactly okay well it would be a nice neat link if i could say your next choice probably was on after doobie duck's disco bus except it's actually from the year before you are veronica murray Bertles of 12 risborough rise london nw10 yes sir yes sir pay attention please sorry sir it is alleged that at 3 55 p.m on the 23rd of last month you veronica murray Bertles, stole a jumper from miss selfridge is this correct? Yes, sir. So, what have you got to say for yourself? I'm very sorry. I can't hear you. Yes, I'm very sorry, sir. You do realise you're a thief? Yes. And you know what happens to thieves, don't you? Yes, sir. What happens? They go to prison. What bothers me most about this crime is you haven't even got the excuse of acting on the spur of the moment. You deliberately went out and stole that jumper. 
which I understand you were planning to sell. Okay, Grange Hill's Ronnie Bertles there getting into a spot of trouble with the police. Anna, why was she? Oh, Ronnie Bertles, what were you up to? Yeah, she was caught shoplifting. Tragic, absolutely tragic storyline in Grange Hill in 1988. I felt so, so badly for Ronnie at the time. And it stayed with me. Well, I remember it being really jarring in the sense that, let's just say, this is when Grange Hill had just started its decline. It wasn't quite noticeable yet, but they brought in that terrible new arrangement of the theme tune with those weird graphics. of It's like a graph paper school book with Phil Cool drawn on it. and things. They were trying to be up to date and it wasn't working. And the characters became a bit more, a bit more universal, a bit less quirky. But mm. Ronnie and company were holdovers from like the quite brutal early 80s era. Yeah. They were around at the time of Zamo Gate and so on. And yeah. the, the interesting thing was they had done shoplifting storylines before. I'm fairly sure there was a very early one with Kathy Hargreaves and Madeline Tanner. And it came up, you know, probably once a year, every year. And it would be somehow they'd be overheard talking about having nicked some lipstick or something. And it would be mm. dealt with by Bullet Baxter would say and what do you think the poor shopkeeper has got to do you think he can just produce money from thin air to replace what you've stolen no sir no sir you know that'll be it that'll be the moral delivered that'll be how much that would but this went really serious the police got involved Mrs McCluskey was seen visibly panicking about it given the police involvement and it's so much bigger and the interesting thing was which I'll come back to in a second that she wasn't a character who would normally have shoplifted she was a goody two-shoe she was the one who later went heavy in on the animal rights activism and went into the school with the doing vivisections. And I hate imitating the sort of deadpan voice that the poor actress who played it would use, but she went into the school and said, Stop this cruelty now. <laughs> kind of in a really flat way. But I will say that is used to really good effect in this. When the police are questioning her, it gives a real sense of panic of like, I didn't expect this to happen. The fact that she's replying in this withdrawn monotone, it yeah. really kind of hits harder than you'd think. I think that's why it worked so well and why it stayed with me and it had that effect because, yeah, you wouldn't expect someone like Ronnie to, to do this. And it just kind of, I think, had more of an effect that it was someone like her who's doing it rather than the real bad girl. She basically, she, you know, she was taunted by the other girls, by Callie, Helen and the other one whose name I can never remember. Georgie. that's the interesting thing about it was the story i've actually came out i don't think they made it clear enough but that helen and georgina had been imelda davis's gang with sharon who was the muscle who just disappeared (laughs) i've always wondered what happened there but the thing was with imelda basically being withdrawn from school for being an undiagnosed psychopath but you know that was the extremes that grange hill used to go to they were looking to make new friends because they were the naughty girls helen was the street kid basically the cockney loudmouth who is gonna come back at one of your other choices believe it or not georgina was like the footballers wives one and to them nicking stuff from shops was just second nature yeah. But in part of trying to weirdly reach out to Ronnie as a new friend, but not, you know, they got Callie on board because Callie was always a bit rebellious. Mm. And obviously Callie was Ronnie's mate from very young childhood. So the Jew were in with the right kind of, oh yeah, you can just get free stuff. And, you know, if you're really cool about it, no one will notice. And, you know, she wasn't cool about it and she was noticed. <laughs> so that in itself was an interesting storyline. But also it was the fact that the one person who took her side was Mr. Bronson. Because there's always that thing about he was strict, he stood for no Mm. highfalutin artisticness and so on, but he was a fundamentally decent teacher who cared about the pupils who did well. I mean, I mentioned on here before, there was that Mm. one where when Zamo stole Roland's alarm clock before the French oral (laughs) exam to buy heroin with money from an alarm clock, but Roland turned up late and Mr. Bronson was begging the examiner to stay, saying, you don't understand this boy, he doesn't have much in his life, but he's really talented at French. But here, he recognised it wasn't something she'd normally do. And there was a lovely scene where he was basically saying we all make mistakes when we're young the important thing is to realize you've made the mistake yeah um, yeah. you know carry on with what you do best and you know i think that would affect the kids because it wasn't expected yeah i mean that was the thing wasn't it with the teachers from grange hill that ultimately they were seen as humans they were caricatures at time but actually ultimately were good and decent and it always had that kind of theme running through it didn't it them kind of being on the side of the kids i think the storyline the timing of it as well for me was key because because it was in 1988. I started secondary school in 1988. So this was on before I started. So I think it was maybe kind of spring 
frightening time, you know, that year when I was about to kind of go to secondary school in, in the autumn. And it really frightened me. I was thinking, oh my God, is, it, is this what school's going to be like? You know, I'm going to be coerced into shoplifting by, you know, rebellious girls and that kind of thing. There was obviously, you know, a bit of location shooting down the precinct to kind of engineer the storyline. Always a really knackered film and <laughs> location stuff on Grange Hill. It really was, yeah. But that's the kind, you know, it was very obviously reminiscent of the places that, you know, you as a normal kid growing up would go to. And she goes and she basically shoplifts a rubbish jumper from Miss Selfridge. It's not even anything dead exciting that she takes and is caught taken. And she's carted off by the store manager. A really wooden kind of performance. I'm the manager here and I think you have something that belongs to us. <laughs> And like it's taken off and then this kind of snowball effect of the graveness of the situation. And it kind of it's cutting between that and the other ridiculous, some sort of ridiculous kind of spaghetti Western type storyline with Ziggy in the bike shed. Yeah. So, the, you know, the kind of like interspersing it with this thing back at the school is like comedy kind of thing. You keep going back to Ronnie and she's kind of taken into the store office and then the police arrive and then she's carted through the streets. It's like medieval torch. She's carted through the precinct by these officers. She has to get in the patrol car and she's driven off and then she arrives at the police station. Station. it's all very grave and there's grave music playing and you know she's kind of like quiet and she's just kind of going through this process and then she's put in the interview room and the end of the episode is her sat there obviously in the police interview room waiting for her terrible fate and it's just her sobbing you could audibly hear her and see her sobbing and then the title start you know and you have like the, that weird juxtaposition of the title music playing really quiet while you just hear her sobbing and like her teary face just kind of large and on the screen and then there's like this freeze frame <laughs> sobbing face it really goes to town on the kind of the terrible situation that she's got herself in and she's just yeah perfect for it because she is quite a, a zombie-like character <laughs> kind of just sitting through this and i always remember her freeze-framed face kind of crying and thinking i'm not going to shoplift now you know, you know i might end up like ronnie well what i was wondering was i have tried to find this and sadly i can't but this was we were a couple of years into broom covered era children's bbc by then so i assume either andy crane or debbie flint did that thing after it where they're looking sort of sideways at the you know that the monitor next to them with the programs on where you sort oh, of see yeah. the countdown clock looking at that with the finger against their chin and then turn back to the camera and say mm, something to think about there and then move on to <laughs> move on to introducing galloping galaxies or something oh, yeah absolutely it definitely had an effect and like you know i thought that's what school was gonna be like when i started it wasn't i mean there, there were kids who shoplifted and my secondary school experience was a quite a bizarre experience i think it was quite a shock to little old innocent me but yeah it was it never quite reached the heights of being arrested in the precinct well i think i can take it in that case that you've never walked away with an unpaid for mcchicken sandwich or was it <laughs> was it chicken mcsandwich i can't remember but that will go down very well with the gentleman involved in this particular clip do you like that yeah, yeah. do you like this one yeah it looks nice i'm not sure what about these i like them if you like them what's wrong with you Nothing, I'm just hungry, that's all. You're always hungry, you are. Yeah. What do you think if I had high shoes? Like, you know, sort of. You like that? I do like it, but well, let's do you? Have that then. I love it, it's really. <laughs> Honestly. He's really. driving me, man. Well, look. Big Mac. I'll have a Big Mac. 100% beef, 100% big. Sometimes only a Big Mac will do. If you get a uh, milkshake, I can have some of it. No, 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 the choice is yours. What do you think? Okay, that's a McDonald's advert from the early 90s, but this one is a little different. Anna, why is it different? Well, this McDonald's advert was directed by a certain Ken Loach. I'm going to have to really bite my tongue through all of this. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be honest about this. I didn't know it at the time, but yes, Ken Loach did the McDonald's advert. I think it was made in 1990, and it was a part of that time where this is one of the reasons why, although I kind of have some issues with Ken Loach for various reasons, mostly cultural rather than political, before anyone starts at me. But this was around the time McDonald's were trying to ditch the whole kind of the branding that they'd overused before that and do a more sort of realistic thing. Because I remember around the same time there was that one about it's sort of a fly on the wall day in the life of a London McDonald's branch. Oh yeah, God. and it had quick cutting vox pops. And towards the end, when they had you know the stragglers who've been to shows and so on coming in, one of them was played by. I cannot remember her name, sadly, but the woman who played Helen in Grange Hill came in and went, Chicken Mac Nuggets! 
Oh, and that was the only other thing I remember seeing her in. Yeah, I, I think maybe that was the pinnacle. I don't know. It just shows you, doesn't it, that crime doesn't pay. This McDonald's advert, you're right, it kind of did mark a bit of a sea change in the way that they advertised. And when I found out, I didn't know at the time, obviously, it was Ken Loach that directed this advert. I do remember it, you know, from the time. I remember it, quite enjoying it. You know, it was quite, it was 30 seconds of something a little bit different. And it was a bit realist in, in its nature. And it all makes sense now when you discover later on that it was directed by Ken Loach, who at the time was, I assume, struggling a little bit for work. But yeah, it kind of does have that Ken Loach feel to it as an advert. And I do genuinely remember it. So when I found out it was here, I was like, oh, that makes sense. You can feel that part of his work and his ethos could in this 30-second advert. Well, the reason behind it, and again, this is one of the reasons I will actually, a lot of people listen to my Marvel podcast are going to be astonished to hear me say this, but I will come down on Ken Loach's side here. I will refute those allegations of hypocrisy because at that point, I think he'd had three or four TV documentaries and film documentaries cancelled mid-production yeah. and they were just desperate for money. And so, you know, to actually keep his family in the house, he did yeah. some adverts. And to be honest with you, I don't quite buy into that Bill Hicks thing about anyone does an advert is off the artistic roll call forever because immediately when I think of comedians doing adverts, I think of Kenny Everett was never not doing adverts, Viv Stanshall, Peter Cook. I would put them higher up the artistic roll call than him. Mm. But I also think what is wrong with somebody like Ken Loach doing adverts to bail himself out so he can then go on and make McLibel the documentary about the McDonald's libel trial which yeah. when you think about it this partly funded so yeah. that is a great switcheroo as far as I'm concerned inside information you know it's, yeah maybe it was all part of the plan yeah but why not do adverts you know loads of great people started out in advertising it's a great starting point for a lot of people artistically you know Tony Scott started yeah. in advertising you know, I mean, obviously Ken Loach didn't start by far from his first kind of foray into directing, let's face it. But, you know, he's a job in director. He's got to earn money, you know, and why not do a series of adverts? They're well-paying. It means that he can get on with hopefully getting something else off the ground and then go on to the fame and notoriety that he had in late 90s, early 2000s, winning the Palm d'Or and, you know, all the great stuff that he did. But you've got to pay the bills. Well, apparently he also did the Karamak advert around this time, which I don't remember, but Karamak seems like the most unken loach chocolate bar imaginable. Surely he would endure I don't know, the official council tarmac bar or something. <laughs> Oh, the Caramac advert, honestly, I'm so glad you mentioned that one because I was going to bring that one up as just the pinnacle, actually, of his artistic career. I don't care about his other films or whatever. That Caramac advert is brilliant. I'm sure people will remember it. I've been calling people a great work lettuce ever since. And yeah, that's where it comes from. The, the Caramac advert of the early 90s that was directed by Ken Loach. Well, the interesting thing about this particular advert is whenever it comes up on YouTube, last time I found it on YouTube, I will say I was absolutely struck by in the comments, somebody replying with apparent entirely straight face, you couldn't do this advert these days, too many white faces. <gasps> Have they misunderstood who made this commercial? <laughs> But the thing is, when people put it on there and describe it as Ken Loach's McDonald's advert, it disappears very quickly, I assume because of the hero worship for Ken Loach, with reports for copyright claim, which I don't believe for a second, because if you just type McDonald's into YouTube, mm. there's basically every advert they've ever done, you know, all these weird 70s ones with like burger singing, Ranald, put us in a bun, serve us to people who eat us. <laughs> That's, and then there's that weird one with the moon singing Mac tonight to the tune of Mac tonight, so it's all on there. Yeah. It's just this one that keeps disappearing. And I think because people, I assume, with a kind of misguided passion, think that it interferes with the narrative. But it's, it's part of the narrative. Even people that you think are fantastic will do something that, for some reason, doesn't sit very well with you. To his credit, Ken Loach has never pretended this didn't happen. No, no, absolutely not. No. He says he regrets it now, but... It's other people want to write it out the story, and I find that really odd behaviour. Yeah, I mean, I, I've written about Ken Loach, his, his films in the past, and kind of, he was part of a panel when his last film was out of the cinema and kind of talking about him and his work. I didn't talk about the Caramac advert or the McDonald's advert, obviously, as part of those <laughs> conversations. But yeah, I will maintain the Caramac advert in particular is a great advert. It's a great piece of humorous of everyday life, and actually, it's quite reminiscent of some of the elements of Ken Loach's work. You know, when you look into his films, there are elements of everyday, normal kind of family life 
like the comedy that comes from within that and it kind of sits within that kind of framing and I noticed I did re-watch the Caramac advert and I realised that the son so it's this couple and their son they're watching football and you know the man and the lad are shouting at the screen the mum opens a Caramac to shut them up basically and the lad is Will Meller and it's just great it's a lovely little advert you know and it kind of artistically it fits within Ken Loach's oeuvre well I would really like it if now it turned out that Ken Loach was the director attached to the unmade the 80s The Human Torch TV pilot film <laughs> that's by the by we're moving on to your next choice now who is a fictional newspaper columnist who let's just say didn't quite get Ken Loach level stories to work with <laughs> Brand new comedy on BBC One with John Gordon Sinclair and Sophie Thompson. Ace reporters on The Herald. Maybe I just don't have your luck at the moment. Only two weeks ago you were on the spot when that block of flats burnt down. I lived there. And you still got a good story out of it, didn't you? I lost my home in that fire. But it's not all smooth running. Well, oh, yeah, great, no trouble at all. Nelson's Column, beginning Thursday the 17th of February on BBC One. <laughs> Okay, original BBC One trailer there for the first series of Nelson's Column. <laughs> Anna, explain the pun as if you um, need to. You don't need to. This is the thing. This is a classic case of coming up with a TV title first and then thinking of the storyline. I said to my husband the other day that I was, you know, I was talking about this show, and I said Nelson's Column. I said oh, I don't remember that. And I said, well, what do you think it was about? And he thought about it and he said, is it about a bloke called Nelson who's got a column on a newspaper? And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's like, what else could it be? So yeah, John Gordon Sinclair, who I seem to talk about every time I'm on this show. I don't know what that's about. Maybe I need to kind of delve into my psyche there a little bit. John Gordon Sinclair plays Gavin Nelson, who works on a local newspaper. And he's always trying to get the best story, but it never quite works out. It's your classic setup, I think, for a mid-90s BBC sitcom. It feels like there's lots of these that people kind of just have forgotten about, you know, from that time. But it's actually a golden period, I think, of, of sitcoms of this nature. Harmless stories and kind of characters, but they always seem to only last for like one or two series. And this is a classic one, and I cannot find much information about it. I have to say, there's not much out there in terms of kind of detail about no, Nelson's column. The Wikipedia page basically just says it existed. Yeah, that's it's, it. It doesn't even sentence. name the writer Paul Mayhew Archer. Yeah, it's crazy. I maintain it was a great show. In my mind, Nelson's column was great. John Gordon Sinclair was a great lead. He was a great. He's a great comedy lead, and how that didn't kind of turn into a wide-ranging kind of you know comedic career I don't know it was directed by Susan Belbin who worked with loads of the greats you know kind of over the years in, in comedy she worked with Rob and Wise originally she worked with David Croft she worked with David Renwick on all of One Foot in the Grave pretty much it's like great kind of comedy background like you say that you know the writer obviously is well known and kind of has done many other things including an actor's life for me with John Gordon oh, Sinclair yes. which was I think it was on the radio for about six or seven years and then yeah. they did one series yes. on TV and it did not work. I was going to mention I was going to bring that up yeah as part of this <laughs> yeah it's another example how this didn't turn into more you know why did Goodnight Sweetheart get 10 series and Nelson's Column only get two I don't understand it. I've got a bit of a theory about that which is that at the time this came out you know because it might make fun of the newspaper business but in a mm. very mild yes, safe very mild. way. Now that trailer I found immediately after it there's a continuity announcement for this forthcoming series called The Day to Day oh, right, yeah. and also John Gordon Sinclair played the reporter in Hot Metal the late 80s late night ITV sitcom yeah. if anyone's not seen it if you ever hated the tabloid press Hot metal is everything you've ever thought turned into scabrous jokes about how vindictive and evil and wild they are. It's basically drop the dead donkey be bitten by yeah. the forces of darkness. But I think maybe people saw this and just thought it's a little bit light. And I can say it was the inspiration behind. In Fist of Fun, Stuart Lee and Richard Herring had a big running thing about inspired by Nelson's column, which they decided was about Ian Nelson had a newspaper <laughs> column of coming up with putative sitcoms <laughs> the type that we thought of first things like yeah. Otherfoot's shoe which is Ian Otherfoot has a shoe and some things happen and it was all because of Nelson's column that, that came out the Fist of Fun book there were scans of it online there were two pages of those things and they are funnier than most actual sitcoms <laughs> yeah, God. I think it was just that I think also John Gordon Sinclair was 
He was much more recognised for more than inverted commas serious acting. I mean, I know he generally always played what were to an extent comic roles, mm. but I think it was the wrong sort of format at the wrong time, really. Yeah, maybe it was a timing thing. I don't know. But it had all the makings, you know, one of those sitcoms that could run and run. Local newspaper, obviously, is, is a great place to kind of set something like this, isn't it? You know, it had the sidekick guy, you know, the best mate kind of worked alongside, which, and it had like the ongoing romance with his colleague, which was played by Sophie Thompson, you know, the world they won't they type thing gavin nelson's this idiotic kind of hapless guy but actually you know will they end up together you had your kind of your cynical editor i had high hopes for, for this show but i think i was the only one but like you say there were a lot of sitcoms that didn't get off the ground around that even with big names in like on the recent edition of this carrie dunn was talking about just a gigolo with tony slattery oh, who was yeah. at his absolute height of fame then and I love that show. Didn't take off. I wonder what it was though. There was that lull, and then, like you say, suddenly a bit later, things like Goodnight Sweetheart and My Hero come along that refused to go away. I think that started shortly after Nelson's column started. With the Vicar of Dibley was the first that caught on like that in a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you what, show I nearly was going to mention instead of Nelson's column, I will mention it as a kind of complimentary sideline, which had a similar issue. I think it was two series. It was a great format, and great actors in the lead roles, and that was Men of the World. Yes, I was going to mention that. Yeah. What it was. I love that. Really good. It had real depth. Yeah, absolutely. It was still an 8pm sitcom. Yeah. But they really... They explored. It was kind of the other side of the coin to men behaving badly. Yeah. Where Gary and Tony, although they're not losers to an extent, they are losers because of their behaviour and they realise it. What were they called in Men of the World? But they were trying to better themselves, but still fell into the traps of toxic masculinity. So that's way ahead of its time. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, John Sim in an early TV role as the younger character. So he was sharing a house, I think, with an older bloke played by David Threlfall, who obviously went on to do Shameless and, you know, lots of other wonderful things. He was an established actor anyway already, but like, yeah, he was great in that role. And then together, it really kind of like seemed to kind of really kind of work well together. And yeah, it was a great show that, yeah, really kind of turned things on its head a little bit in terms of how you would see men interacting on screen and kind of push the boundaries a little bit. Again, only two series. Well, again, I think that was a timing thing because that came out just at the height of before it all went really unpleasant. But you know, the sort of the new ladism that came in the start of Britpop. It was the whole... They were like kind of the anti-Oasis, those two, in the the (laughs) sense. But also it had a terrible theme song. Oh, yeah. Which I think really must have... People must have turned off before the programme had even oh, started. Yeah, I could probably say, I'm not going to sing all of it. I, I won't embarrass myself It that was much, like but... something that, say, between the two of us and the Piglet file, somebody thought, <laughs> Nicholas Lindhurst isn't odd enough. Put him in something to make it up on the spot. It's the sort of theme you would give to something like that. Yeah, God, yeah. No, it was terrible, actually. <laughs> Okay, well, I have got no way of getting from there into your next shows other than that. Had it happened within the purview of his local paper, I've no doubt Nelson would have written a column about it, but no, I'm not going anywhere there. Let's just carry on. Six Doberman pinchers trained to commit the most incredible caper ever conceived, the Doberman gang. Six savage Dobies with a thirst for cold cash that leaves banks bone dry. The Doberman Gang, Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson, Ma Barker, Pretty Boy Floyd, John Dillinger. They ain't in it for the dog business. Hightailing it to their hideout. Who says you can't teach a new dog old tricks? (coughs) Clockwork canines, trained to rip off banks with mechanical precision and rip up anybody who gets in their way. See the Doberman Gang bite the long arm of the law. The Doberman Gang. Exciting family entertainment. Rated PG. Okay, a trailer there for the Doberman Gang, a film I had completely forgotten about. And when I went and looked at it, I thought, I cannot have forgotten this. So, <laughs> Anna, please try and explain it. Well, it's the classic plot line of an animal trainer who trains a pack of Dobermans to rob a bank. I mean, you know... <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous plot, but it's brilliant. It's the best heist film. I maintain it's the best heist film ever made. Forget Ocean's Eleven or Heat. It's literally or Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Literal Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean. There is no other way of describing it. It's literally Dobermans robbing banks, yeah. like in an organised gang. 
thing. It was in 1972. Oh. There are big stars in it, apart from Julie Parrish is probably the biggest name in it, but it inspired two sequels. Yeah. The Daring Dobermans, which has got even less information on Wikipedia than Nelson's <laughs> column. But also, The Amazing Dobermans, which not only has Barbara Eden in it, but Fred Astaire. <laughs> So it was huge at the time. You know, it was an actual franchise and it disappeared. I know. And there's been talk that the people have bought the rights to it and they're going to remake it and it's never happened. But surely it's only a matter of time before this was remade again because why wouldn't you want to make a film about Doberman's robbing a bank? It's just, yeah, it's the most amazing film. I only caught it by accident on TV one time. Me and my brother used to, I'd go around to his flat on like a Friday or Saturday night and we'd watch videos and, you know, kind of eat your takeaway or whatever. And one night we'd finish watching something on video from probably from the video shop down the road which only had about three titles you could choose from you know that kind of thing and we just happened upon the Doberman gang and we'd never seen it before and we were just hooked but it's very rarely on I don't think I've seen it all the way through since but it's there in my mind you know as kind of the pinnacle of film and I'd love to see a re-release you know I want to see it on the cinema screen I want to see those dogs robbing that, that bank right there on the big screen well there is a lengthy discussion on the Wikipedia page about the various available elements for the soundtrack not the actual soundtrack was written by Alan Silvestri of all people who later went on to do Forrest Gump Back to the Future and so on but you know the, the speech soundtrack apparently there are various different elements for it and there's a debate over which would be the most suitable for a restoration <laughs> I am wondering about this, that obviously, I mean, it's interesting you saw it on video because apparently it came out originally on home video, literally when home video started in the UK. So, you know, the early 80s, which is exactly the same time as there was that chain of what was the hardest dog, where it started with Alsatians, I think, in the late 70s. (laughs) Then they became Dobermans, then Rottweilers, then Pitbulls. Then it sort of disappeared after that. There was a whole panic about Pitbulls. And remember that Chris Morris thing on Radio Wobbly saying, what would they be walking down the street with monitor lizards on leads next <laughs> it's sort of disappeared but in the early 80s dobermans were the hard dog where yeah. you see notices in that little window next to people's front door saying burglars please break in but don't forget to feed the doberman pincher preferably with your leg and that sort of thing so i'm wondering <laughs> if anyone got this out expecting some kind of gruesome video nasty like, possibly <laughs> like, oh my god they savage the police while they're making their escape but no it's not like that at all <laughs> It's just, oh, it's the most wonderful experience watching this film. It really is. I couldn't recommend it highly enough to people if they can get hold of it. And it's so 70s. It's so, has that real kind of 70s American film vibe to it. But it's about dog. It's got the same sort of look as, you know, the inserts in Sesame Street, the film bits. <laughs> where it... <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it really is a sight to see, and I can't believe it's not celebrated more, to be honest. I did notice, apparently Gene Siskel, in the Ebert and Siskel review when it came out, it doesn't say what thumbs up they did or didn't give it, presumably because that would be unfair on the stars who do not have opposable <laughs> thumbs. He's quoted as saying, calling it a sort of canine Bonnie and Clyde. And the problem with that is that the way that's quoted, it uses Bonnie and Clyde as in the title. And, you know, if he's referring to the setup about, mm. you know, bank robberies... Yeah, I suppose you could just about call it Canine Bonnie and Clyde, but I'm sorry, but as charming as this film may be, it cannot be compared with the Beatty and Dunaway Bonnie and Clyde. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think he was struggling there to file his review. I'm not even sure there were any dogs in that, actually. I don't think so. I, I think no. some might run away barking occasionally when a car pulls up. <laughs> Maybe, obviously, you would struggle maybe to comprehend quite how to classify this film. I think the dogs were named after real bank robbers or something. I can't remember whether the dogs were coerced into taking on these roles or whether they were happy to take it on and do the heist. I mean, I don't know, you know, how the dogs Oh, you mean actually the context it. of the film? I was yeah, going to say yeah. they probably came from like the same agency as Benji. Probably. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I don't think they were coerced into starring in the film. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, I was quite surprised that apparently the Daring Dobermans is in the same way that the Italian job had been written with a direct follow on sequel to be made back to back with it in mind. The Doberman gang sort of ends the Italian job kind of way because they escape over the horizon with the loot yeah. and then the next film picks up immediately from that with you know what happens next <laughs> 
They're obviously there's expecting it to like run a Doberman enough. cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They had real confidence, really, in this. Like, you know, it, there was a real confidence to this film that it was going to run and run. You know, kind of this was just going to be the plot that keeps giving. And yeah, unfortunately, it was not to be. Okay, well, I don't know if anyone would have trained the Doberman gang to steal the subject of your next choice, but they might well have done. Not really a clipping news here, so here's a song that may have been appropriate around the same time. by my life story there late 90s song about well things sparkling so anna what were her jewels bear in mind i don't have any context on this <laughs> at all oh dear honestly in some ways i'm not sure why i've chosen this because it's kind of just going to be like me using this podcast as a bit of a therapy session i think for women of my age her jewels were the epitome of that era um so her jewels were literally what they say they were these little jewels that you twist into your hair when you're going on a night out and they were right faff and why we endured having to put these in our hair I don't know but it kind of fitted with this whole aesthetic of that era of of what you would do to get ready for a night out and I know that you know every era has those things you know those routines and those kind of processes that you go through in order to kind of get yourself ready and go out but for me this was my era you know this was me in my early 20s going out with my mates for a night out and this is what we did and hair jewels are the thing that seemed to kind of stick out a little bit more in the memory of what that entailed because it was ridiculous and stupid and yet we, we did it and we kind of you know we, we'd get ready for our night out as if we were going out in some exciting West End club when actually we were going to Hammersmith and we were just going to some local bar that had a disco on it was a experience aesthetic I think um, that was of its time so we're talking very early 2000s I can paint you a picture I can set the scene if you want of kind of what a night out and getting ready for it entailed at that time these objects it's like a culture <laughs> kind of around it as well maybe a way of being I'm not sure so to set the scene you know can you paint a picture of that time and place so imagine you're a young woman in your early 20s or maybe your late teens you're getting ready for a night out you might be in your shared house you might be going out with your housemates or whatever um, and you get ready to go out so you've got your music on so at that time it's possibly your CD player maybe a bit of UK Garage you know or maybe Destiny's Child album maybe your Ministry of Sound CD you know I'm, you know, I'm not fussed you know kind of conjure it in your mind you know as Craig David sings fill me in you'd start to get ready get your outfit ready for the night out you're probably wearing a top with maybe one shoulder strap or maybe no shoulder strap so you need to put your body tape on I don't know whether you know what that is and why that existed but essentially you'd either be wearing that to make sure you didn't suffer a Janet Jackson style wardrobe malfunction while you're wearing this tiny little top and that's like a hanky or you might wear your detachable clear bra straps that you can also buy if you were a little bit more reticent about kind of you know not wearing a bra so you'd have your little top on you'd put your little denim a-line denim skirt on with your boots or you might be you might be the type who might wear jeans or cargo pants which were big at the time you know think all saints with their kind of you know cargo pants or whatever but whether it's a denim skirt or whether it's jeans they'd have a shimmer to them so they weren't like playing denim they'd have like a a glittery shimmer to them for no reason and then you'd put on your kind of your little belt which served no purpose other than decorative the last thing you'd probably do is you before you put your hair jewels in your hair was to put your body shimmer on so you know obviously you know the one strap top or whatever you'd, you'd make sure on the other shoulder you had your body shimmer on your arm and you know you'd stick your hair jewels in and you'd be ready to go and the hair jewels would fall out through the night you know and they'd end up at the bottom of your handbag because they served no purpose and, and never stayed in and yeah you, off you'd go and you know all the items were available at the till at Topshop by the way so you, you were covered you know if you were in you were always covered in terms of making sure that you had all these items to hand for your night out and yeah you'd get dressed up basically with nowhere to go because you literally would be in my case going out into some of the the senior places in West London because you couldn't afford to go up London at the time to you know the cool clubs playing the cool music and kind of be seen with with all the cool people you'd literally be like saying Hammersmith or Ealing Broadway and kind of you know at the local bar I think Club Barracuda was the place that I used to go with my housemates which was some really divey awful bar on Ealing Broadway not even the nice bit of Ealing Broadway it was a bit further down and you'd drink your Smirnoff ice and you'd have a dance in your suburban bar and then yeah you'd go home and that was your night out and you'd go through this routine and this kind of you know it's like a religion to kind of get ready for these nights and it was very of its time 
time in terms of the music that was played and the image that you know was kind of created with these outfits and yeah that is essentially a memory kind of ingrained in my mind from my youth of that was a night out and hair jewels just encapsulate that vibe for me or did they bring any tangible sort of benefits whatsoever or did you just wear them because you just wore them because and i don't know you know you get them from like a, a branch of accessorize or whatever you know kind of in your local high street and they're always very hard to get in as well you know it's not like they were dead easy to apply them to your hair some of them were like little clip-ons like tiny tiny little clips and others were like you twist like a twist of metal like you had to kind of twist into your hair it'd pull your hair and it'd really hurt if they came out and yeah this just the most ridiculous item and nobody noticed you know nobody noticed you had them in nobody said anything you know it certainly didn't you know get the attention of you know the boy that you fancied or whatever he wasn't like oh my god i'm gonna go talk to her and buy her a bacardi breezer because she's wearing hair jewels and she looks amazing they serve no purpose and yeah i wonder if they're still around i don't even know if, if you can still get them well i can only assume that the nightclub lights it must be the same effect does there used to be in the 80s a singer called maggie moon who was always on things like name that tune where she's a bit like a prototype jane mcdonald <laughs> but she always wore clothes that were like you know you thought elton john had glittery jackets these were they must have been like precision tooled to be as refractive as possible the second she stepped out you know like Tom O'Connor go here she is Maggie Moon and she'd come out and it'd just be this array of like sort of pulsar lights flashing at the TV <laughs> I'm sure some people took cover and thought has yeah, some attack been launched but it must have been kind of like I must have got those little kind of like end of the Peter Davis and Doctor Who credits supernovas reflecting off your hair yeah maybe yeah maybe while you're dancing to Body Groove yeah you were catching the lights and yeah kind kind of just creating this kind of aura around yourself maybe 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 they had more of an effect than i remembered i don't know well the one thing that i can bring to this is that there's a phenomenon that i really remember noticing because i was djing a lot around that point in sort of indie clubs you would always notice looking out across the dance floor it would change every three weeks or something there will be one indie girl will turn <laughs> up with something on her head that she found somewhere and thought, that's going to make me look different to everyone else. Whether it was, I remember this happening with like really sort of fake cheap tiaras. Oh, yeah. And another one was like kind of those Romanian headscarves like the dancers wear at the end of Chigley. I remember them becoming <gasps> a thing, but one woman would turn up wearing one of these things and the next week there'd be about eight or nine of them and then suddenly there'd be everywhere. And then that third week, somebody would think, oh my God, I look the same as everyone else. I've got the same <laughs> yeah. thing on my head. I'm going to find my own thing. And it's like a cycle. Like that was constantly changing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I kept hoping there'd be a craze. Do you remember those spiral paper hats that used to get in the 80s? You used to promote like a concrete mixing company or something. <laughs> I do remember that. I wanted that to become a thing. But that might have been a bit too close to the time when, you know, before high visibility jackets were everywhere, when you just saw them on blokes sticking up the railway and so on. Mm. I remember I found one in the charity shop and thought that's going to look great in this particular indie club with UV lights. It was oh, a crazy yeah. house. Anyone from Liverpool is listening. I thought that's going to look amazing. It did not. It did looked it not? like it was cosplaying as the <gasps> video from Mama Used to Say by Junior. It was just like <laughs> luminous. The effect of the lights on it. I'm sure I must have temporarily blinded some people. So <laughs> that never happened again. No, no. This is the thing. It's like you, you want to stand out. You know, you want to be different. Different, but actually we all look the same we're all in the same party top from bay trading or whatever and kind of like this is the thing you look like everybody else you never kind of stood out and it was a strange time both musically and kind of in what we were and i did look at some photos actually from the time last night just to kind of see how daft to look but also looked at some photos online of you know what other people were wearing at the time and it was yeah it was so funny to kind of see those themes emerging i wonder how people feel now about you know those big those massive trainers that the spice girls used to wear with like yeah the big chunky shoes like Florence's shoes on Magic Ground about yeah exactly yeah absolutely but at the time they looked really impressive yeah yeah they kind of don't when you look back not really no I mean it's all part of like you know you kind of your journey isn't it you know in, in that cultural journey of trying to find yourself and kind of find out what it is you know but one thing I would never was was cool so yeah you can guarantee I was never one of the cool kids but I tried tried my hardest and there was also the thing about whatever was cool somebody uncool would eventually adopt it so there's no exactly. point the thing I always remember was when I was at university it was a really big thing for kind of like square sunglasses with usually yellow tinted lenses but they were of the colours like green and so on it was bands like Corduroy wore them a lot oh yeah, yeah. And I think people like Jarvis Cocker and well Mel B and so on started wearing them and then eventually 
bloody Bono did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure people went like shredding photographs of themselves for their student days. I don't want to be associated with him. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I don't know what the equivalent was at this time. Atomic Kitten, I don't know. We used to go to a club called Nylon, which I'd probably spelt differently. I I don't know how it's spelt. We was down in the city. I don't know why we used to get on the tube from West London or wherever. And we'd go all the way to the city of London on the Waterloo and City Line and go to this club on a Friday night after work. it was played good music. I used to love dancing when I was younger, and yeah, it, was, it played good music and, and everything. But then went back a few years later just to see, you know, when I was back down in London after moving away, and it had literally been pulled down. I went to see this club that we, oh, you know, I wonder if it's still there. Literally pulled down, pile of rubble. So they literally had to get rid of it once I stopped going. It's probably that embarrassing, maybe, when I used to go. Oh, come on, give yourself some credit. All the cool had gone, and all the hair jewels as well. <laughs> yeah, so that's made, why they had yeah. to close. Maybe the hair jewels did it, actually. Maybe they kind of got into the to the walls of the club and brought it down put it crashing down around everybody okay we're moving into your last choice now which is something from very very slightly earlier in musical and cultural terms but regardless of the chronology it's like it's from another universe muggy humid but where it's raining the humidity is gradually disappearing spasmodic showers now across the uk a lower high but still very hot the pollution levels are falling and the pollen count is going down where it rains okay 421 now then uh, back on day 27 of 31 days in may you may remember that on this show we gave away a trip across the atlantic to record a new jingle for one fm well last week we flew the winner on a luxury flight and thank you very much to ian meldrum and everybody down there from acton to dallas okay couldn't find the original jingle annoyingly which i really wanted to find but that's steve wright introducing one of the prize winners from radio one's 31 days in may anna people will be remembering this title and not possibly because they deliberately blanked it out not remembering what happened in it so what did well i can guarantee i was not the prize winner that steve wright was introducing on 31 days in may because try as i may i never (laughs) got through i I really tried so 31 days in may was a radio one segment big kind of all singing all dancing flagship prize giveaway on radio one running all through may and there'd be a prize every day in may and there was such big prizes you know like really at the time were were really great things basically there'd be a a, like a, a big kind of alarm that went off like at any point during the day I think it was and then they'd do the competition so you had to listen out for the alarm and then they'd announce the prize and then the phone lines would open and you'd have to ring in and answer some questions and then you'd, you'd win this big prize so yeah it's, it's your typical kind of you know kind of prize giveaway on Radio 1 I can't remember some of the prizes I've included it for one particular year which I think was 1990 it might have been the second time it ran and one of the prizes was to meet Jason Donovan and at the time I was a massive Jason Donovan fan my Jason Donovan years was fleeting it maybe encompassed a year to 18 months but I was obsessed and you know I heard that one of the prizes was going to be a chance to meet Jason Donovan and I was so excited and I'd listen to the breakfast show I think they changed the format slightly and tweaked it so it was just on the breakfast show something like that so I'd listen out on the Simon Mayo breakfast show to see if it was going to be the Jason Donovan prize that day and they'd announce it I think at eight o'clock in the morning so I was cutting it fine for leaving to school at this time so it was 1990 I was probably 13 so yeah I, I should have been setting off to school by then but I'd listen in every day just to check it wasn't Jason Donovan and I'll be okay and go to school and then of course one day it was the Jason Donovan prize and so obviously I, I had the phone that I was ringing and I was ringing and I was ringing and I was ringing and I never got through and someone else won the prize and I was absolutely gutted and also very late for school and so my mum had to drive me <laughs> my mum had got up at this point and had to go to work and instead of going to work she had to drive me to school and drop me off at the school gates in a flood of tears because I hadn't won the chance to meet Jason Donovan and I was devastated and that feeling has stayed with me as has the sound of the hooter on 31 days in May signalling my downfall and you know what could have been had I met Jason Donovan well that has reminded me I'll get on to what I actually have to say about 31 <laughs> days in May itself in a minute but it's around me of something I'd almost completely forgotten about, which is it must have been 1989 because I remember hearing Sowing the Seeds of Love by Tears of Fears a lot during <laughs> yeah. this. Carly Minogue played at the Royal Court in Liverpool, which even at that stage was a small venue for Carly Minogue. I mean, it's changed now. It's bigger. You know, it's more grand now, but it's the sort of place you'd go to see Ride on My Bloody Valentine. When Bowie did Tim Machine and, you know, was trying to get back to basics, he played there instead of a big stadium. That sort of thing. But Carly Minogue did a gig there and you could only get in... 
if you wrote into Radio City <gasps> and they read your name out on there and you phoned in to confirm it was you because you had to put like a code word in the <gasps> letter. And I never, for some reason, you know, 1989, I'd been to see the laws that year. I'd been to see the Stone Roses twice. But for some reason, I really wanted to see Carly Minogue <laughs> and I didn't get to. And it still rankles out. There were probably people who won multiple tickets and then just didn't go. Yeah, would have been amazing. And yeah, that feeling, like you mentioned, you know, that it still rankles. Like, I still, I mean, I don't know the person who won that chance to meet Jason Dunn, whether they did, whether it actually happened. I mean, I don't even know if it was a real prize. I've got no way of knowing, but I still feel that envy of that person who, who got my, is my prize. That was my chance to meet my hero. Yeah, the heartthrob Jason Donovan, and they took it away from me. And I'll, I'll never forget that feeling of like, it should have been me. Well, not all the prizes were that great because, you know, it went on for years and they had to get 31 <laughs> into. I'll come back in a second to why it was 31 days in May. But it was things like online, somebody referred to one being going fishing with Bruno Brooks, which I can <laughs> see actually, that doesn't sound like a parody to me. That sounds like something that they would have given away. Yeah. And, you know, they were probably like, some people got to meet Jason Donovan, some of them will have got a special promo of tangled reasons <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing but the reason it happened was apparently it's all to do with something to do with listener profiles being compiled in may for all radio stations and need oh. to get as many people listening as possible it's one of those things where when you try to read about the background to it it loses you after about 15 words and eventually you come to where you think that doesn't make sense that just contradicts what they've already said <laughs> it's one of those deals but they took it very seriously and it really was it was one of the last great things of the johnny Beerling era radio one before matthew bannister notoriously took over and made it into a station people might actually want to listen to for the music <laughs> which was very controversial at the time but you know this competition had nothing to do with the music really but the whole gimmick of it was i don't think they did it this way every year but it supposedly the actual giveaway would be a random point in the day yeah literally a klaxon would go off usually when simon bates was back announcing i beg your pardon by concan or something and there'd be this klaxon then a bit of montagues and capulets which most people know is the music from the apprentice so years before that it's also at the start of rank the smith's live album but i don't think that had any bearing <laughs> on the news here and then I think you had to phone in. Is this right? And then there were three questions. And the yeah. first person to get all three right won the prize. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think... Yeah. It didn't happen. I will say it didn't happen during like the evening session of the Antiques Records Roadshow. <laughs> no. it, it was just the DJ shows. I don't think it ever interrupted news, Pete. Wasn't there a wheel the first year? Well, am I imagining that in my It may head. well have been, actually. Cause it's Where the they'd sort spin of thing. it and yeah. choose a prize or something. Well, they had to think of innovations because, again, it's typical of the Johnny Beerling era that they had thought of the title and then not really bothered that much as <laughs> we give some things away. It's like the whole famous story about, apparently, I've never been quite sure when this was, but they had, somebody had an idea for, a, I think, a couple of days of broadcasting called Ticket to Ride, where Radio 1 would be live, the ferry to ride. <laughs> And John Walters, the producer who did a lot of the specialist shows, he pointed out that the ferry to ride lasts for about 30 minutes. <laughs> but they still went ahead and did it. But yeah, that was, you know, you think of the bombasticness which they introduced 31 Days of May yeah. and the prizes. It was that whole sort of, it's 14 Radio 1 minutes past three. It was a different kind of Radio 1. It was like yeah. it ruled the world. Absolutely. It presented itself as your sole focus. That was one of the things they did lose in modernising it, was it went to i was never convinced by they replaced it with those radio one as it is campaigns where it was like there would be a clip of like joe wiley chatting to oh, yeah, yeah. i don't know noel gallagher or something you know if you're into that sort of thing and you see that after six o'clock news that's quite exciting if you're not it's not quite the same. No, no. The bit before, you know, so the 31 days in May, I think it is reminiscent of like, you know, the kind of, yeah, the big flagships of like the Radio 1 Roadshow and how big and important that was to people in their lives, you know, going to see the Radio 1 Roadshow in your local town or, you know, kind of it would come to like Southport or wherever, you know, and you, people would be off and, you know, it'd be a big thing. And it was all part, for me, 31 days in May is part of that kind of universe of Radio 1 where it was like, yeah, it was like a, a big kind of all singing, all dancing, juggling of itself it wasn't about the music like you say it wasn't about you know it was about radio one as a kind of concept yeah it all kind of ties in with that in my mind i think and that is to get a bit more kind of serious for a minute i do think that's one of the things that makes it really sad that i actually think it's sort of recovering now but as somebody who wrote a book about radio one that came out in a certain week when a certain story broke it was so sad that 
everything that people had loved about Radio 1 growing up that had nothing to do with a handful of scrawny old bastards mm. was kind of tainted. Not even to the people themselves. It was like you weren't allowed to say, I like this about Radio 1, because it even went beyond that. It felt like a bit iffy to be championing, say, something like Blue Jam, which, you know, which was Chris Morris at 1 in the morning. Yeah. In 1997, 8, whatever. Radio 1 became a dirty word for a while. And it is sad that, you know, we have all these fun memories, things like the roadshow, like 31 Days in May, where most of the time nothing became of anyone because of it mm. should we say and i'm glad that they haven't won if you see what i mean yeah yeah absolutely yeah but we've kind of got that back now yeah yeah because it well you know it's part of for a certain kind of generation you know that, that all of that was like part of you forming as a young person you know kind of forming your interest in stuff and your kind of interest in music or whatever it was you know i i'd radio one on in the morning as so i was getting ready for school anyway you know kind of that's what i did i didn't watch tv or i listened to the radio got myself ready and, and off for school you know the breakfast show was a big thing you know for people you listen to it you the, that that's what you did and yeah there's kind of you lost that sense of you know the fun element of, of those kind of shows and the, the silliness and that kind of thing that was kind of lost a little bit so did you ever go to a road show no i didn't this is the thing I, oh I, you I was hoping you have a story about yeah. seeing sydney youngblood I, on stage or something i absolutely <laughs> wish i've been there watching the reynolds girls you know kind of like whatever no i never went my cousins went my cousins went to the one in Southport but I, I wasn't able to go I lived in Leeds they lived in Southport and they went one year I, can't, I don't know what year it was but it must have been around that time it must have been 89, 90 I never got to go and I'm like why what's wrong with me you know why haven't I got that little story about me meeting Philip Schofield at you know the Radio 1 Roadshow it hasn't happened it never happened for me and I, I feel like you know I should and I should have that anecdote but I don't I'm really you know I'm really sorry to disappoint you if you live somewhere like Leeds it would be more likely that if Radio 1 showed up it'd be <laughs> a live showcase as we're always called where all yeah. the specialist DJs would be like sort of standing around like nodding at the music <laughs> you know, like Janice yeah. Long you know there was still that side to Radio 1 people were there for the music not for the celebrity side of it so there was even them but yeah that would be all you get Pretty gutting, least, yeah, let's the, be honest about it not going to pull the Radio 1 roadshow into the car park of the riding centre in Wakefield I mean you know that's just <laughs> never going to happen so yeah it didn't have the same kind of pull for them I think <laughs> I mean, it could have been worse. You could have got Doobie Duck's disco bus pulling yeah. up. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have been amazing. Anna, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me again. Fun at One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1, from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details at timworthington.org.